0: When you tune in to Bible Idiots, you're going to get the teaching platform of me. I'm Chris Danielson. Well, every now and then, God has laid it on my heart to have participation going on. And our youth pastor of the church that I'm the senior pastor of, Fresh Encounter Church, Luke Ferguson brought a message, and I want to make sure that it gets out to the audience of Bible Idiots as well as the audience of Fresh Encounter Church. And so Luke is going to take us to Philippians chapter 2, and it is actually a Christmas passage, and he does such a fantastic job. I'm just excited to bring that to you. So here we are, Luke Ferguson from the main auditorium at Fresh Encounter Church with Philippians chapter 2. I firstly just want to take a moment to Again, um, anytime it's, uh, I'm privileged to step up here and give you guys a message. It truly is an honor to me. So I just want to thank you all as my brothers and sisters, the congregation that I'm a part of for giving me this opportunity and these opportunities. And I thank Pastor Chris as well. Um, we are, uh, as we move into what I'm giving our message on tonight, I'd like to um, acknowledge a reality that we're all a part of right now. <clears throat> this this season that we seem to be completely engulfed in um, between mid to early November to the 1st of January. Yep, that's right, the holiday season. Um, But that holiday season gets completely overshadowed by just one holiday. I think if if your household's like mine, there are no other decorations up in the house besides this one holiday, that holiday being Christmas. And for a good reason, it should be the above all holiday of this season. I, I believe this time of year should be completely revolving around Christmas. Now, to bring you into my life, again, just for a moment, um, and maybe some of you can relate, when, uh, when Macy and I got married, <clears throat> we had two completely different opinions on when exactly the decorations should go up in the house. Um, in her family tradition, and neither one is wrong, so just let me disclaim that right now. In her family tradition, it was, <clears throat> and I exaggerate, basically 1201 on November 1st, everything's up. Trees up, lights are on, ornaments on, stars up. Dad was out on the roof doing the lights and all that, and all the, <clears throat> all the knickknacks were out on the tables and everything. Um, and that's fine. But it's just, it was, in my opinion, way too early. And me, our family kind of did it a little bit differently around maybe Thanksgiving, maybe after Thanksgiving. Um, but me, when I was talking with Macy about it, I was like, nope, I want to enjoy the fall. I want to enjoy Thanksgiving. We're going to do it December 1st. And obviously, that <clears throat> is way too late. Um, so we came to an agreement being, uh, after much deliberation, uh, we both agreed to it being, um, well, the Marine Corps birthday, which is the 10th of November. So basically no earlier than that. So on Veterans Day, the 11th every year, that's when we start to do decorations. (laughs) Now, I'll let you guys do the math on who got the closer to their desired date, but I, I digress. I truly actually, I love it. I don't care. I could sell, I want to, I want to celebrate Christmas all year long, the true meaning of Christmas all year long. Um, but the decorations can only be for two months. Uh, maybe a little longer, depending on, depending on how long, the, how good they look in January. But I have come to love all the hype around Christmas. I, the, the true meaning of Christmas and because it is the most wonderful time of the year. It really is. And that's why I was so privileged when Pastor Chris asked me if I would be willing to start off this Christmas series Uh, For you all. Uh, Now, I do have one disclaimer. I unfortunately have one, well, I have a few gripes about this time of year as well. It's not all sunshine and rainbows for me when it comes to Christmas, and I'll explain why. Unfortunately, the reason my heart hurts so much this time of year is because I do see so much celebration. I do see so much merriment happening. I see many gifts and toys and parties. I see laughter and I see craziness going on. I see a world that gets all hyped up and all whipped up in a frenzy. For nothing. I see a world that celebrates Christmas for the gift giving. In and of itself, none of these things are wrong. But I'm telling you, the prioritizing of these things are for the gift giving, for the parties. Even some people get so excited about what kind of alcoholic concoctions they can make this time of year, warm or cold. I see a world that gets so concerned about the Santa Claus aspect of it all, and they completely set aside the Christ aspect of it all. Amen, and unfortunately, I also see, I was at supper the other night, and on the TV, um, I have a bad habit of if there's a TV on, there was no sound on it, but I just, my eyes just have to wander to it. And I'm still listening to your conversation, but I just cannot help it. I was reading the subtitles and it was Grand Old Opry, something like that on CMT, I think. And it was all the artists were talking about their favorite things to do around the holiday uh, in between like a set list that they had. And everything that they talked about, they talked about gifts, they talked about the parties and celebrations, they talked about going skiing and snowboarding and you know, getting on their, uh, their snow machines, four-wheelers, all that. And all the, maybe the drinks and the food that they would eat and, and enjoy. And I, unfortunately, I didn't see one single mention of Jesus in this this holiday celebration and i'm sure that most of these country singers at least by in name they would claim that they are christians and so that saddened me when i didn't see one mention of christ other things happen this time of year where people actually malign the name of christ they will say false things about him or they will celebrate a skewed version of him and Some people will bring around some old heresy because it's nothing new. They're all the same old lies, but they just get brought back in new packages every couple of years or every couple of decades. Uh, It's not only the non-religious. It's also the people who adhere to other religious systems. Our Muslim friends love Esau, but they claim that Allah has no son. They say that Jesus, Esau, is a wise prophet and he did many good and wonderful things, but they say that he never actually claimed to be God. They also say he never died on the cross. Two false things. Even the Hindus have a false, uh, skewed version of Christ in their vast pantheon of strange and exotic gods and goddesses, but none of them are the true Jesus. There are even those who have a version of Jesus, who is, that is so close to the real deal, it's almost hard to distinguish. Um, many of us have friends and maybe even family that adhere to the teachings of Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints or the Watchtower organization. Um, those who will claim that Jesus is not indeed the creator God, that he is but one of many created beings, and they will deny that there is one ultimate God. And like I said, these can be hard to distinguish facts from fiction. There also is belief that Jesus never actually came as a man at all, that he was just some manifested spirit that was here on the earth. That's a Gnostic belief that was as old as Christianity itself and was refuted by our early church brothers and sisters and refuted by specifically the Apostle John in his letters and his gospel. And Finally, and I think maybe this is also one of the most uh, sickening things that I've I've discovered this last week, is that we have at our very own Capitol Rotunda in the state of Iowa a Baphomet sculpture. And if you don't know what Baphomet is, it's a symbol of Satan. It's a ram with horns, and it's a body of a man. It's literally up in our state capitol right now for the Satanic Temple of Iowa. They have set it up for religious purposes, and they want a... They want a representation this holiday season. So Christmas gets completely skewed by so many false things that are lies. But we as Christians, we do understand the true reason for this season. At least we should. But sadly, so many Christians don't truly respect the weight and the gravity of this holiday. And Pastor Chris and others have referred to these as the visible church or the um, consumer Christianity. People who say that they're Christians, but they don't actually believe what they say or do what they think they believe. All too often, many Christians celebrate merely, again, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but they merely celebrate a baby in a manger, wise men from the East, frankincense, myrrh, a star, and then somehow salvation for sin gets wrapped up in that, but they don't really know why or for what reason, and they leave it at that. And again, None of these things are insignificant, and Pastor Chris will faithfully bring you to those beautiful passages in the, next, in the coming weeks and completely crush any notion that they are meaningless. He will do that as he has done it before. But as I was contemplating how I wanted to start, I wanted to go off on a little bit more of a basic level to get us a launching point for the next couple of weeks, and then we'll get into the specific Christmas passages. With all that being said, I'd like you to join me in diving into one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture. We're going to be studying the incarnation of God, or as I've titled this message, the humiliation of God. Please turn with me now to one of the most important passages in Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, as you find that passage, I'd like to give us a kind of a working definition of what that word humiliation means. It, it means the abasement of pride, which leads to a state of being humbled or reduced to lowliness and submission. Now, I will ask you if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 2 5 through 11. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, Although existing in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I ask for guidance and wisdom in this study of your word, that we all may truly come to know who your son Jesus really is. And in his holy name we pray, amen. Please be seated. As I go through this examination of scripture in this passage, I want you guys to to realize that I have, I do have four points that I'd like for us to remember. And I I went with the alliteration, I went with ours to kind of help us. That we, we know that from this passage that Jesus is indeed rightfully divine, that he did relinquish that divine position. He was reviled as a man and he was restored to honor ultimately in the end. In this passage in Philippians, we'll look at rightfully divine. Paul is using Christ as the example to follow. He always uses Christ. He says, "Have this way of thinking which is also in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus." Verse 5 and 6, actually 5 through 7 are all one sentence. So we must look to Christ in verse 5 when we come to verse 6 which says who? The who, the subject is Jesus. Now for a moment, so Paul is using this example of Jesus as someone that we should emulate, someone that we should try to follow. But this verse, this passage between six and 11 can actually be isolated to be an extremely good proof text for the divinity, the Godhood of Jesus. And that's what we're gonna look at today. Again, who, who being the subject, the priority of this passage is Jesus, who although existing in the form of God. So we'll pause there for a second. Although means even though or despite the fact. So despite the fact that Jesus always, Jesus is existing as God, we see existing. Now that we're gonna define that word for just a moment. That word existing there means it's a continuation of being or continuing to be in a state of being that one has always been. It means being originally in the form of God, that form of God That word in Greek is a fun word, and I'm gonna say it a lot, so just get used to it. Morphe, morphe, it's a fun word. The morphe of God, so he always had that always, that continual state of being that he always had forever, the form of God, the morphe of God. That morphe, that word form, that means the character, the essence, the essential form, the intrinsic or essential nature of a being. The specific use of that word here, is it implies the immutability or the unchangingness of the nature that it describes. That form, Morphe, is who he is. He cannot not be God. This amazing reality has been quoted like this. Jesus, the God-man, truly and fully God, truly and fully man, in his incarnation, he manifested outwardly his intrinsic divine essence. End quote. This divine essence, this immutability, this unchanging nature, this this glory, because that's what it is, it's glorious, reminds me of Isaiah 42. Now I'll just read it for you, you don't have to go there, but this is the Lord speaking. He says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another because we serve but one God, not multiple gods. We serve the eternally existing one, the Lord, Yahweh. He shouldn't share his glory with anybody. All of creation is beneath him. So that's why it makes me wonder in John 17, five, when Jesus is praying to the father, he says, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So now track with me. If Yahweh shares glory with no one, which he does, not share glory with anyone, and Jesus says that he has the same glory and he has always had it eternally, since before creation, then one could logically surmise or should logically surmise that Jesus is actually claiming to be God here. So that refutes that doctrine where he never actually claimed to be God. And we'll go into a few more passages that explain that too. But back to that word morphe, that fun word, that word for form. In verse six, we'll see that it is a declaration of being in the form, the intrinsic nature of God. And it must be understood as a reference to his deity. We'll see this word Morphe used again in verse seven about his true and actual nature as a man as well. Morphe does not mean that he merely possessed the appearance of God only, and it's not just the word being either, because Paul uses that word being another place. This word Morphe instead, it stresses, it's very specific, and it stresses the person's essential nature, the continuous state of being that cannot change. Now, I... Again, I am stressing that word morphe a lot because it is so important and I understand that um, you guys probably think I might be beating a dead horse, but we have to understand that a specific word was used here for a specific purpose. Because today in our time, in our culture, words are so meaningless. They can be so insignificant because we have allowed them to be, because anyone can take any word and make it mean anything they want and then we're just confused all the time. And it's frustrating, but this is God's word. And not one of these words is insignificant or meaningless or without depth. So after all that fun run around, I wanna show you something really cool that I, that I saw here. It's basically saying so far is Jesus, even though or despite the fact that he is God, always was God, always will be God, never stopped being God, cannot not be God, In verse six, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped? What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what some say it means. They'll say, well, there you go. Jesus let go of his divinity. He he laid it down. He didn't grasp it. They'll say that while on earth, Jesus set aside his godhood. No. Actually, that is... Emphatically, no. Anyone who teaches this either didn't read the sentence properly or has an ulterior motive or philosophy or an agenda to push, and most likely it's the second one. Um, That's not what the text says. And since words do mean things, as you all agree with me, I think, sometimes we have to look past the face value and dig a little deeper and discover the true meaning of these words. So let's take a look at that word grasp. It It means in Greek, the act of seizing, of an object, or an eager desire, or a prize, seizing an uh, opportunity, something that, that must be held onto for fear of losing it. It actually implies um, robbery. Some translations translate it as robbery, which means as a thief robs somebody, they grasp whatever they're clutching with dear life because they're afraid to lose it in their escape. It implies it's something that can be lost. So what Paul is basically saying here is that Jesus is so absolutely God that it didn't matter what he did, he could never stop being God. He could never lay down his true divine nature, his morphe, no matter what he did. He could, he could stoop so low, as we'll see in the next couple of verses, and not lose one itty bitty tiny microgram of his morphe, his nature of God. He never felt for one second, Jesus, while on earth, never felt the need to grasp it because he couldn't let it go. It could never, ever be let go. We see without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God from verse six. Therefore, he has all power and authority and rule. He created all things by the power of his word and he is deserving of all respect and honor and fear and glory. He is before all things. He is above all things. He has the highest position ever possible, the highest reputation. But having said all that, and with that in mind, we see a but. But what? But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And now we'll look into the relinquishing of the position. But what did he empty himself of? I briefly mentioned before a belief that Jesus, while on earth, completely laid down his divinity. His divinity. And I'll stress the word completely because the people who espouse this ideology stress the word completely as well. They'll say it over and over and over again to prove their point. They'll say that while Jesus was on earth, he completely got rid of his godhood. He was merely a man who was indwelt with a full indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Whatever that means, because I don't know of a half indwelling of the Holy Spirit or a partial indwelling of the Holy Spirit No, Jesus was not just a man who was gifted with the Spirit. No, he was God from the beginning, and he was God, he is God forever. Now, this, where Jesus lays down his divinity, it's a strong word, but that's actually a heresy, folks. Because if Jesus, if God could get rid of his godhood, If Jesus can get rid of his godhood, he is not God. That being that they're describing is not God. And to deny that Jesus is God, you are not a Christian. I'm sorry to say, but you're not. And remember why I was stressing that word morphe so much. Again, and I stress it more and more because it is so dangerous to hold this position. And it has a specific philosophy behind it that people are trying to push. And maybe I can get into it another another time. But basically, at the end of the day, they want to make... They want to lower God, they want to lower Jesus' position, and lower Jesus' divinity so that way they can take that place and do some of the specific things that he did on earth. They make themselves out to be God as well. Having said that, I hope you realize how vitally important it is that we know what words mean. So to get into it again, that word emptied, what does it mean? comes from the Greek word kenos, another fun one. It's a very deep word and it's used exclusively as a metaphor in the New Testament. It's not a literal word, it's a metaphor. It's a a very strong meaning which means to make void, to nullify, to make of no effect. So what the Holy Spirit through Paul here is saying is that Jesus Christ temporarily gave up his position of honor and grandeur as the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead. He set aside for a moment his place of honor, never his nature. I'll, I'll illustrate this with an analogy. I am a man. I possess manhood. I will always possess manhood. That's my morphe. I, was, I, had, I possessed manhood when I was a embryo in my mother's womb. I possessed manhood when I was a little baby. Manhood I had when I was a boy. Uh, I am a young man. I have manhood, and God willing, I'll be an old man someday. I will still have manhood. Even when I'm dead, the bones that turn into dust in the ground will still be the bones of a man. I will have that manhood forever. I cannot, it cannot change. Likewise, Jesus, that morphé that he has as God, as it says in verse 6, is something that he will never change. He cannot ever change it. He never lost his God nature. But he definitely did something, didn't he? I mean, if not, then what are we doing here? If not, then Jesus is not the man who literally split time. And he is. We see that he did something. And the King James puts it so beautifully, I think, here. That word kenos, they translate it, of no reputation. He made himself to have no reputation. He gave up his divine reputation, his godly position, his place of honor, Never his godly nature, never relinquishing his morphe. Again, I keep stressing that, I know. That English word emptied makes us think of like pouring out a jar or a cup or a bucket or something. But it's a different word here used for like pouring out a drink offering or sacrifice or something like that. It's a completely different word. This, kenos, means to make of no reputation. Now, it's not just that Jesus gave up his divine reputation, but... It's the manner in which he did it that is so astonishing and so miraculous. He emptied himself by, he made himself of no reputation by or in the manner of taking the form of a slave by being made in the likeness of men. What an absolutely uh, wonderful and mind-boggling statement that is. That the all-powerful creator of the universe, the one who's outside time, space, and matter, actually, who is above all things and through all things and before all things and will be after all things, actually stepped into time and into space and took on matter. And he did it by becoming a man? I'd like to transition to the next point by quoting C.S. Lewis for a moment. He so graphically describes the almost indescribable. So I quote, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down to humanity, down further still, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he had created. But he goes down to come up, to bring up the ruined world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower, to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. In this descent, everyone will recognize a familiar pattern, a thing that is written all over the world. It is the pattern of all vegetable life. It must belittle itself into something hard and small and death-like a seed, it must fall into the ground, and thence new life reascends. It's the pattern of all animal generation, too. There is descent from the full and perfect organism into the sperm and the ovum, into the dark womb, and the slow ascent to the perfect embryo, to the living conscious baby, and finally to the adult. End quote. So God did descend, He condescended to the form of a slave to the form of a man, it says in verse seven. And that takes us to our next point. He was reviled as a man. He is rightfully divine. He did relinquish his position and he was reviled as a man. He took the morphe of a man, something only the all-powerful God could do. He took the true and full nature of man. He did so without losing one tiny bit of his true and full nature as God. He took the same nature that you and I possess with all the, the ability and the sh- with all the shortcomings that, that are with it, the ability to feel pain and suffer, the ability to, to struggle and feel the hardships and difficulties of life, the very same ability to be tempted, yet, as God, no sin he did. No sin did he do. I believe this brings even more credence to Hebrews when it says that we have such a great high priest— who's been tempted in every way that we have yet without sin, he did indeed take the form of a slave. And like a slave, he humbled himself to the father. Yes. It can be difficult sometimes to understand this situation here that God submitted himself to God. Our minds can only bend so far, but that is what the text says. But the question is not so much the how, it's the why. And maybe someday, God willing, we'll know more about the how. But for right now, let's just glory over the why, the why he did it. And in Hebrews 5, we find out that it is that he would be the source of our salvation. And with that goal in mind, him being the source of our salvation, Christ made himself in the likeness of men or in the outward appearance as man. Not only did he take our eternal nature, but he took our physical nature as well. In order, so, or in order to or so that when he did come, in verse eight, we'll see that he was found in the appearance. You see, it wasn't enough for God to just come and be a man. He needed to be perceived. He needed to be found as a man. And many, a lot, saw him for who he truly was, Emmanuel, God with us, as the text says. But, but most, most did not. Most only perceived him as a man, as a blasphemer. He needed to be thought of as a blasphemer because of his actions and his words. And many try to claim that Jesus never actually claimed to be God again, like I said. But if that's the case, then why did they kill him? In John 10, 30 to 32, Jesus says, I and the father are one. And they picked up stones to, to stone him, to kill him. And he asked them why. And they say, because you make yourself out to be God. Something so serious to them, they understood what he was doing. If that's not a claim of divinity, then I don't know what is. And if that wasn't enough for you, John 8, 56, even more powerful. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says to the Pharisees. And again, they picked up stones to kill him. Now, if you don't know, and many of you know the gravity of that I am statement, but if you don't, I'll take you back to Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter three. Moses is talking to God in the burning bush. And he asks God, he says, whom shall I say that, they, that sent me to the Israelites? And he says, God says back to him, tell them I am sent you. I am, that word, that Greek word, that Hebrew word, excuse me, is Yahweh. That is his name. The existing one, the eternal one, Yahweh sent him. So Jesus very plainly is saying, before Abraham existed, I existed as Yahweh, I am. A clear statement of his divinity, and that's why they tried to kill him. Because in God's overall plan of salvation, he couldn't, it couldn't just be God coming down, but it couldn't just be man either. All of us, and this is a true statement, all of us who are who have eternally sinned against God, an eternally wonderful and great and loving God, and we all have done that, deserve an eternal punishment in hell. And his plan was a replacement for us in that punishment, a substitute for us, a sacrifice that would finally fulfill the price necessary for that debt that we owe, a debt of eternal weight, one that no mere man could bear. Therefore, God in his infinite mercy and grace decided from the beginning to change that, to do the work for us. First promised, the first promised gospel, believe it or not, is in Genesis chapter 3. God is saying, he's cursing the snake, he's cursing the serpent, Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and her, that is the woman, between your seed and his seed, or her seed, and you will strike him on the heel, and he will strike you on the head. He will crush the head of the serpent. So the son of a woman will crush the head of Satan and forever destroy the power of death and hell. We see in this verse eight, and he humbled himself even to the point of death and not just any death, folks, but the most horrific death on a cross. And as I wrap this up, brothers and sisters, I want us to understand this holiday, this holy day is so much more important than the world wants to give it credit for. Credit that is due to such an awesome God, a wonderful God, an, an awesome God, one that we should literally be in awe of. We don't simply celebrate this time of year, a baby in a manger only who was given gifts. And we certainly must not prioritize some fairy tale gift giver from the North Pole. Instead, let's prioritize the one who eternally existed as God, willingly stepped down from this place of honor lowered himself to our pitiful position, Lord himself still further by going to the cross. But that's not where it ends. The cross is not the end. Thank the Lord, the cross is not the end. We see in these passages that Jesus is indeed rightfully divine. We see that he did relinquish his position. He was reviled as a man, but ultimately he was restored to honor. He was restored back to his rightful place as it's written in verses nine through 11. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. So I bring us to a close. I'll ask you to please remember who that baby in the manger is. That it is the Creator, Yahweh, the Creator, the Lord God, the Lord of all, the King who stepped down to your level to die for you. And remember this passage in Philippians, this passage that we don't think about at Christmas. Remember the truth here, because this time of year is the best time of year. Your family is forced to come be around you, regardless if they want to or not. So when they say Merry Christmas, let's say, if they're, not, if they're not a believer, it is Merry Christmas. Do you know why? Let me take you to Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11, and you can tell them what I just told you, that Jesus is God, that he died. He came and he came as a baby, as a man. And you can freak him out, but... I mean, maybe not, but still, this time of year is the best time. We have so many people around us that are talking about Christmas. Let's tell them what the real meaning of it is. Don't let these moments pass you by. Share the truth here in Philippians. And above all else, this is for you guys. Never, ever forget who that baby really is. Father God, I thank you so much for this time that you've allowed us to have together. We just Lord, we just praise you for for your word that reveals this all this awesome truth that you the infinite creator stepped into creation to save a pitiful wretched man like me, pitiful wretched people like us from st- a, a punishment we deserve. Lord, you are so good, and we thank you so much. We pray, Lord, that you give us strength and courage this holiday season, this Christmas season, to boldly and lovingly proclaim the truth of the gospel. And in Jesus' holy name and in his strength, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of my husband, Chris Danielson. Bibleidiots.com is still the website for this show, but we have grown. The new parent ministry is found at freshroadmedia.com. We would love to have you join us on our sister broadcast, a talk show that walks out Christian living and Bible apologetics entitled No Apology with Emily and Chris, a weekly download from freshroadmedia.com. Both broadcasts are listener-supported, and we would love to have you join us as the Lord leads. I'm Emily Danielson, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And may you see the blessings of the Lord as you go and serve your King.